so I'm up quite early this morning and I'm trying to do some work on the book. It hasn't been the most productive weekend. I did, however, watch the new Evil Dead movie, Evil Dead Rise, which was an awful lot of fun. Someone gets scalped within about 30 seconds of the movie starting. I'm all about that. I'm all, not in real life. I don't want anyone to get scalped in real life. It looks very painful. But if I watch an Evil Dead movie, I want to see someone get scalped. I watched another movie called Significant Other. That was quite good, a sort of alien invasion thing. Sorry, I probably should have said spoilers before I said that, but uh, if you watch it within about five minutes, you know that it's an alien invasion movie. And I've slept a lot. Uh, I really hope my book publisher isn't listening to this. If you are listening to this, Mr. Book Publisher, then do know that it's 10 minutes to 8 and I've had a cup of coffee and I am writing my book today. But something else I have been doing this weekend is I have been listening to the new Blur record, The Ballad of Darren. That's very good, isn't it? I have a bit of a complicated relationship with Blur. They were basically my favourite band when I was 15. The pillars of my teenage years go something like this. Nirvana, Blur, Biss, Slayer. That's kind of my journey through music as the 90s go. But when I was 15, it was all Blur. I went to see Blur at Sheffield Arena with Craig Shea, who was my friend at school. He was the only guy who really liked Blur at school. And we had tickets to see him at Sheffield Arena. It was the Great Escape Tour, amazing stage production, London buses and telephone boxes and all this sort of stuff. It was Blur really at the height of their Britpop pomp. And I remember we had these school jotters that you would put what you you would put what you were doing. You would put classes and exams and things like that in there. But we, like uh, like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, we would tick off we would tick off the days in a sort of uh, a ledger until it was time to see Blur. And it was man, if you could bottle that kind of excitement that I felt about seeing Blur, then uh, if you could bottle that, then you would make an awful lot of money. But I loved that era of Blur. I, I, I loved the romance of it. I loved the pomp of it. I loved the celebration of where they'd come from. It got me into so many other bands and really kind of shaped my ideology, how I viewed pop culture. I loved the Britishness of it. And that's a bit of a complicated statement, Britishness, because really that era was very white. It was very male. And, you know, was, there's a lot about the modern era that frustrates me. And I think some of the conversations that we have about all sorts of things uh, 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 a little bit performative but there's definitely something when you look back and you go ah, uh, it, was a little, it, was a, it was a bit white wasn't it it was a bit white it didn't totally reflect actually what Britain was at that point and what it is but that aside I, I liked hearing people sing songs about things I recognised about experiences I recognised about a landscape that I recognised and you know, you know that was Despite the Dick Van Dykeisms of a lot of the music that they made during that era, that was the world that I lived in. And though it's really churlish to view Blur through the prism of Blur and Oasis, I, you know, it was, it was silly fun, wasn't it? I, I, I went to the, I went to HMV on the day that Country House came out, and I, I, I bought a copy, and that was me registering a vote for what I for what I liked and what I believed in. And I, I liked Oasis. I'm a working class kid from the north of England but that was me saying oh I, I like the sensitivity and I like the artistry of Blur but it is really hard to think about Blur's story without thinking about Oasis and thinking about the influence that that, that 
largely manufactured pop scuffle had on their career because it, it did feel like around that time Blur almost became a little bit ashamed of being Blur. And that's a shame because I feel like they nipped in the bud something that they were doing that was important or certainly enjoyed an awful lot by me. I think The Great Escape in many ways is kind of Blur's quintessential record. It's the most Blur that... It is the Blur that I had posters of on my walls. It's become in vogue to criticise Country House in recent times as being a very silly and disposable pop song. But, you know... I think pop music is supposed to be silly and disposable a lot of the time. And also, the middle eight in that song, you know, it's all part, 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 all hanging out with cover girls from Loaded Magazine and all that, you know, all that stuff seems awfully dated and awfully Benny Hill and, you know, whether you like that or you don't like that, whatever. But what we don't talk about enough is that somewhere in the middle of that song or sort of the latter end of that song, it just turns into this existential nightmare. Blow, blow me out, I'm so sad, I don't know why. Do you know what I mean? That is as silly as the song perhaps is. And I like that song. I went to see them play at Wembley Stadium, as I was telling you on the last episode. When they played that song, it was a hoot. But the fact that that song suddenly switches gears like that, we don't talk about the genius of that song enough, I don't think. And obviously there's these little cars, there's, there's Yuko and Hero, which is an amazing song that uses this metaphor of siloed Japanese factory workers as this metaphor for absent love. I I presume that it's about Justin Frischman touring the States with Elastica and her then boyfriend Damon doing similar with Blur and the the distance between them. But I love all that stuff. Entertain me, I think that's I think that's a banger. I think that's I think that's a song, if I'm going to be trite, that is almost like a great Lost Pet Shop Boys song. I I think that record's brilliant and I will defend it to the death. Not so bothered about Ken Livingston turning up and all that, but, you know, it's a, I, I love that record. I think it's a brilliant record. And around that time, I feel like Blur become almost embarrassed of being Blur. I'm sure there's loads of other stuff going on. Burnout drugs there's a lot of stuff you know beetle bum is a song about heroin i'm sure there's a lot going on there but it almost did feel like blur had a look at what they were and felt embarrassed and i I think that's a shame and i did enjoy blur the self-titled record i think beetle bum is one of the greatest songs that's ever been written by a british pop band but i probably enjoyed look inside america the most on that record and that's and that's kind of closer to the cartoonish nature of blur that i that i like so much there were some good songs on 13, but at the time when that record came out, I was kind of out. I, I almost felt like it was a betrayal of what I'd got into. It's a little bit like Elon Musk buying Twitter and then deciding that he wants to call it X. It's almost like, eh, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this kind of multimedia, metaverse-esque experience. I just want somewhere where I can make jokes and I can piss around in real time when football matches are on and and big episodic dramas. I, I'm not sure I bought into it for this, Elon, but I felt a little bit spurned when Blur became something else. And then I guess my tastes kind of changed and, and as the years went by, I mean, I, I said, you know, Slayer. When I discovered Slayer when I was approaching 20 I was I was all in on noise I'm not going to say metal so much just a weird thing for someone who edited, edited Kerrang to say always been more of a punk guy but I was into noise I was into distasteful noise and that's a long way away from Blur and, and, that, and that band that I loved so I didn't really get involved with the records that followed 
And I guess that I almost sort of became a little bit ashamed of being a Blur fan, you know? Like, just wasn't where I was at. And I kind of dipped in out of curiosity, and I interviewed Graham Coxon when I was at the enemy. We went to, we did this interview in Costa Coffee on, on Parkway in Camden, and it was a disastrous interview because the coffee machine kept going off and I couldn't hear anything Graham had to say, but also very exciting and a bit like, oh, look how far I've come. I would have bitten all my fingers off to give you a slightly vulgar image if anyone had said to me when I was 15 that I would interview Graham Coxon one day. There's some other weird stuff that went on in that interview, but I'm going to save that for the book if it's all right for you. And I really need people to buy my book. I'm totally skinned. Which, you know, if you wanted to subscribe to the Spook Substack, there's plenty of details about that on the other episodes, but I won't go into full um, self-promotion mode now. I'm trying to get to a point. Although, if you do scroll back the podcast feed, there is a there is a very good episode, that I, I think, if, if I may say so myself. There is a very good episode where I interviewed Graham. Um, that was early this year, if, I, if I've got that right. And obviously, I followed Damon and Gorillaz. I, I like his solo records. I think Gorillaz a good. I think, I think he's an amazing songwriter. Hang on a sec, I need a wee. I've never interviewed Damon, though, and I've always wanted to. And one of the things that always amazes me about Damon Albarn interviews, like really amazes me, is that anytime anyone writes about him, and, and I've talked about this in this episode so far, that he does melancholy so well. There's a real weighted sadness to the songs that he writes. You can hear that in Gorillaz as well as Blur. And I just want someone, and you know, if any commissioning editors are listening to this, then I am your man. I just want someone to sit down with him and say to him, just, just ask him one question. I can't believe this question has never been asked. And that question is simply, Damon, why are you so sad? Damon Alban gets all these comparisons to David Bowie and, and not without reason, I don't think. I think that both of them are, I guess, what we would call in the trade pop chameleons. They shift and they change as eras pass. And they're both incredible songwriters and they're both boundlessly creative. But I feel a little bit like Damon how I felt about Bowie, which is, who are you? Obviously, being the teenage Blur mega fan that I was, I, I read all these interviews and I learned things about Damon's upbringing. I learned about him growing up in Leytonstone or Walthamstow, or however you want to divide the area of East London. I live somewhere between Leighton and Walthamstow. I, I went to see Damon play uh, on the on the cricket pavilion that's near my house one bonfire night. It was it was amazing. It was a, just a real treat to see him so close to where he was from and where I live. And I know that he went, you know, he went to college in Colchester. I, I know, I know all that stuff. I know a bit about the arty upbringing that he had. But there has to be something. There has to be something inside of him, which he taps into when he writes these these gorgeous melancholy songs. And I don't think anyone has ever really got to that when they've been in conversation with him. In fact, when I saw Blur play at Wembley Stadium the other week, they, when they were playing Trim Trab, I believe it was, Damon burst into tears at the end of the song. I mean, he was crying he was inconsolable with emotion at the end of the song i mean it was quite astonishing to see damon arban this this guy that received criticism at the height of blur's fame you know during the during the 90s for for not being quote unquote for real for not being liam gallagher and saying it how it is and dressing up and wearing different clothes and putting on a performance I wonder what those people thought when they saw him sobbing his eyes out on stage in front of thousands of people at Wembley Stadium. I'd just love to know what it is about Damon Arban that, what happened? What happened to you, man? <laughs> what, what is it that, what is this weight that you carry which translates into these gorgeous melancholy songs that you write? 
better than anyone, I think. And I suppose that leads into what I think about the new record. And I know I've taken nine minutes to get there, but I don't think it was too boring between then and here. Maybe you stopped listening. Maybe you thought, James, just get to the point. In which case, you're not listening now and I can say what I really think about you. And I think you should have more patience. Stay with me. It takes me a while to get to a point, but I get there eventually. And I think in lots of ways, maybe, maybe it's just a tonal thing. Maybe it's just because The Ballad of Darren is such a sad record. It's a really introverted record. It, It doesn't really have any of the zest of what I would consider peak blur. But it's certainly the record I've enjoyed by them the most since the days that I've been talking about. And I think in lots of ways it's because they feel like a band that are comfortable in their own skin. It doesn't feel like Graham Coxon's going, hey, I've heard Sebado and Pavement, should we do a bit of that? It doesn't feel like Damon is rebelling against the fact that he's just a wizard when it comes to melody. There's other instrumentation on there, there's brass for the first time that I remember in years, there's strings. It feels like Blur aren't ashamed of being a pop band anymore, but it's so desperately sad in places. The first song, The Ballad, which I believe was actually written for Gorillaz, but then reworked to become a Blur song. That's such a sad song. Barbaric. All the hooks, all the sadness. The close of The Swan, just a beautiful, beautiful, sad, mid-tempo song. And I just feel like Blur aren't wearing any costumes on this record. I feel like there's just a, there's just more of a peak under the skin of who Damon Albarn really is. And I think James Ford has done a really good job with the production. I, I guess I guess I would like this record to have more sheen. I feel a little bit like with Blur that there's still that there's still that sense of they're just trying to compress things. They're, they're still just they're still just frightened of that that brashness and that confidence that they they didn't question about themselves when they, when they were younger. But certainly the sense of dislocation and the confusion about the world that I think a lot of sensitive people feel in 2023, that's prevalent throughout this record. And I just feel like you have more of an idea about the people who created this record than maybe you ever have before. And I think The Narcissist is probably the best song they've written since about 1996. So I think this record's really special and I really hope it's the start of something and not just a blip. I felt like when I saw them at Wembley Stadium, it was almost an audition. It was almost an audition for Glastonbury. It was almost an audition for relevance and presence in the modern age and not just a band that you could go see and they would play part life and roll out the hits. Everyone always talks about how ambitious Damon Albarn is. There's loads of people who criticised that about him in the 90s, that he was almost like a businessman or a marketeer as opposed to a musician. I don't think there's a problem with that. Again, coming back to the David Bowie comparison, I think that's something that all great artists do. They announce to the world, this is who I am. But I think that there is a sort of macho posturing about Damon in that regards. And I I don't say this as a criticism at all. I hope this is a record that they're going to tour. I hope this is a record that means that Blur are back, so to speak. And I imagine that Dave Roundtree and Alex James and maybe even Graham feel the same. So here's to that. Listen, I'm going to have to go do some book. I've talked long enough. I promise you there are some episodes coming this week that are interviews with people. I won't tell you who they are because quite often when I arrange interviews for the podcast, sometimes they fall through, sometimes they get put back. But I am doing a couple this week, so there will be some quote-unquote conventional episodes soon. Thanks for listening to this. Thanks for sticking with the podcast. Thanks for your support. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated. I'm sure I'll speak to you soon.